Hey, this is Carl Anderson. I'm the senior pastor of Sierra Bible Church, and this is our sermons podcast. I want to thank you for joining us today, and I hope that this message fills your soul with hope, helps you see the beauty of Jesus, and allows you to feel the love that God has for you. If you want more information about experiencing God's love for you personally, head over to sierrabible.org and contact one of our pastors. I love you, and I'm praying for you. Uh, If you brought a Bible, please open uh, with me. Uh, We'll start in Psalm 108, verse 5, but uh, just a fair warning. Uh, See, I'm going to break something. There's your fair warning. Uh, just a fair warning, these, the, the, these tabs in the side of my Bible are all of the scripture references that I'm going to be going through uh, today. I don't usually teach in this particular way. This is a, a, a doctrinal sermon, so there's a lot of passages that I'm going to be working through. And I don't teach in this way normally, so I had to uh, put little tabs on there. So we got a lot of work to do this morning. So settle in, take a nice deep breath, fill up your cup of coffee if you haven't already. Um, but if you go fill it up right now, then you're going to miss most of it. So don't fill up your cup of coffee. Uh, nudge, uh, nudge the person next to you if you see them nodding off and say, uh, don't pretend to be praying because your uh, eyes are closed. You're just lying. Uh, so get buckle your seatbelts. We're going to be in for a ride this morning. Uh, before we get into the details of the message, though, uh, last week we were praying as a church. We stayed after the service and we were laboring in prayer uh, to God for many things, one of which we were praying for the healing of our brother Stan Gillen. Uh, Stan, when I came to the church five years ago, uh, he's in his 80s, and he said, I don't know why the Lord still has me around, but as long as he does, I'm going to be serving him. He was in the hospital last week, and we were praying for his healing, and just an hour and a half after we were praying for either a full healing or praying for the Lord to take him home and to give us peace, Uh, The Lord promoted Stan Gillen to glory. And right now, he is experiencing what we just get a foretaste of in the gathered worship. He is better by far, and we grieve, but we grieve as those, we grieve as those, as not as those without hope. Uh, If you are new this morning, uh, you picked a really good week to join us. Uh, Have you ever wondered, what's the purpose of the church? Why do we do what we do? What type of people are supposed to be in a church? What is a church supposed to have? Or a number of questions just about this thing that we call church. Last week we began this series on the church with an emphasis on prayer. Prayer is an indispensable function of the church. God, by His Spirit, birthed the church through prayer, and prayer is the conduit through which God's Spirit empowers the church for continued mission. We had, as I mentioned just previously, an extended time of prayer at the close of our service last week, and uh, a large portion of you, of our uh, members of Sierra Bible Church and our regular attenders stuck around to pray after the church, after the service for our church. Well, today we're going to be jumping back into the, the series in the church and we're going to be looking at a biblical vision of the church. When God has it in his mind, what he desires the church to be, 
this is what he has in mind. We're going to be jumping all over the Bible, so get ready to move all around. Uh, but as you are getting settled in the Scriptures, uh, let me begin by asking you a question. It doesn't need to be a question from when you were a teenager or a, or a young person, but remember growing up, what was like the one show, television show, that you looked forward to watching after school? It might have been in prime time, might have been right after, right after school. Um, if you were a child of the 80s like I was, and uh, you were kind of 10, 11 years old in the early 90s, you probably enjoyed watching a group of six teenagers who became friends at Bayside High and got in all sorts of trouble as teenagers at Bayside High in the, in the television sitcom Saved by the Bell. Any Saved by the Bell fans here? All four of you, thank you. If you were born in the 60s or 70s, maybe you remember the story of a lovely lady who was bringing up three very lovely girls all of them had hair of gold, even like their mother, but the youngest one was in curls. You may also remember the story of a man named Brady, who was busy with three boys of his own. They were four men, they were living all together, but they were... I knew that one would uh, resonate in this crowd... <laughs> but they were all alone. Until the one day when this lady met this fellow, and they knew it was much more than just a hunch that this group must somehow form a family. And that's the way they all became the... <laughs> My goodness, you, can, you, you need to stick your nose back in your Bibles, folks. Good grief. The Brady Bunch. And no, that's not... Uh, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers and uh, and uh, Tom Brady's former Tom Brady's former uh, teammates, uh, the Brady Bunch. Uh, maybe the Brady Bunch wasn't your cup of tea. Maybe you're a little bit uh, different than than that. Uh, potentially, you might remember the you might remember the sitcom Friends. Similar premise: Friends six group of friends who were living in New York City, the theme song, I'll be there for you. Or maybe cheers, a group of adults gathered in a tavern after work each day because they wanted to go somewhere where everybody knows. <laughs> you seriously get in your Bibles, people. Good grief. The Brady Bunch displays a vision of a blended family where everyone belongs. Saved by the Bell displays a vision of six random high schoolers who struggle through life together, but they become friends and find their belonging. Friends displays a vision of young professional urbanites who find friendships through a high-rise living in New York City and in a coffee shop where they all belong. Cheers displays a vision of average people who go to blow off stress and steam of the daily life and work, and they gather together at the local tavern to share a drink and find a place where everyone can know their name and belong. Each of these sitcoms proclaims a vision of life that satisfies the human heart's longing and need for belonging. And today I hope to give you a much more compelling vision that satisfies the human craving for belonging. It's not a vision rooted in entertainment. 
or family heritage or political affiliation. It's a spiritual vision cast by the authors of Scripture that's rooted in eternal reality for a people who will belong to God and to one another forever. I want to cast a biblical vision for us this morning by asking one just thought-provoking question. How is God calling you to fulfill his vision of the church here at Sierra Bible. Let me ask that again. How is God calling you to fulfill his vision of the church at Sierra Bible right now? We're going to go through seven fundamental features of a biblical vision of the church. I have uh, each one of these features on the screen for you, and I designed it in a way that looks like Brady Bunch and Saved by the Bell got married, and I thought maybe if I put it in some wacky font, you won't get mad at me when I throw you some theological terms. You can't be mad when I use the word spatiotemporal slash eschatological if it's written in a, in a font that you, associate, that you associate with Jan Brady saying, everything's always Marsha, Marsha, Marsha. The first essential element of the church is that the church is a worshiping community. Scripture affirms that, that God created all things for his glory. Uh, Psalm 108, chapter 5 says this, Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all of the earth. Creation is intentionally designed to resound the glory of God in his creation of all things. God in his mind designed them to reflect his glory. So that the church in particular, as God's redeemed people by grace, as when God's redeemed people by grace get together to resound his glory, to proclaim his glory to all of creation, he does, they do it in such a way that brings him worship. And it's not set to one's particular geographic location. The church is to continually give honor and glory to God in any geographic location they find themselves in. You remember the story of Jesus' interaction with the woman at the well in John chapter 4, if you want to turn there. In John chapter 4, Jesus is engaging this woman at the well, and he is attempting to bring out of her her sin so that she might repent of sin, trust in him, as Messiah and be saved. And she tries to dodge the question by throwing up open the, the question of a worship war that was happening. Uh, there was this two, there's these two camps of worship in Jerusalem and Samaria, and they were warring against one another for what is the proper true worship. And so the Samaritan woman trying to dodge the question where God was in, or where Jesus was interacting with her in a deep manner, he, she tries to dodge the question by saying, well, you Jews, you worship in Jerusalem. And you say that's the proper place to worship the Father, or to worship. And we, Samaritans, we worship over on this mountain. And she doesn't specifically say which mountain it is, but it's Mount Gerizim in Samaria. And there was this worship war that was happening. Where is the proper place to be worshiping God? Jesus responds to her to that very question in John chapter 4, verses 23 and 24. He says this, The hour is coming and is now here. When true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, 
For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. Jesus is saying, now that I have arrived, now that I have inaugurated a new vision for humanity, as I have come as Messiah, God's spirit is going to be poured out in such a way where location is not going to matter. It's not going to matter whether you worship in the temple or in a building or in a home or in a lecture hall. What's going to matter for God, what God is seeking in his worship is a community of people who are gathered to seek after God and worship him both in spirit and in truth. In spirit and in truth. You know that form and function must be united in all things. Whether... We need to know how to use something, not just in order to understand why it was designed. For example, a hammer is really good for, for nailing nails. A laptop is really good for computing and word processing. If you try to hammer a nail with a laptop, not only are you going to be unsuccessful, you're going to destroy your laptop. Likewise, if you try to word process with your hammer, you are going to fail your exam. The purpose of the church, brothers and sisters, is to glorify God as a worshiping community, a family gathered from all different tongues and tribes and peoples and languages, regardless of the location, to glorify him as a worshiping family. This is why it, it shouldn't have been a big deal for you or me or for us as a church. It should not have been a big deal, and it shouldn't be a big deal if a pandemic hits or if war occurs or if we experience some sort of oppression in some overt way that says you can't worship in your buildings any longer. That should not be a big deal for the worshiping community. Location doesn't matter. We'll gather somewhere else. We'll go to a park. We'll meet in homes. We'll do whatever is necessary to gather together to worship our Father because location is not material for the church of the living God. We can worship in homes or galleries or lecture halls or storefronts or businesses or theaters or basements or even in parks in the outdoors. Physical location is not substantial. That's what Jesus is saying. What matters to God and the worship of his church is worshiping him in spirit and in truth. Which leads to the second essential characteristic of the church is that the church is centered on the word. What does it mean for the church to worship in truth? Well, the church is built on the word. The word is revealed in two ways. The first way that the word is revealed is the word incarnate. In Jesus Christ himself, the word made flesh. The church itself is built on him as the truth. After Peter confesses in, uh, in John, or excuse me, in uh, Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, uh, Jesus is asking the question to his disciples, who do you say that I am? And people are saying, well, some people say John the Baptist, some people say one of the prophets. And Jesus says, no, Peter, who do you say that I am? And Peter makes the confession, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus responds to him in Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Jesus is saying, Peter, on you, as an apostle, 
on your confession of me as the Christ, I'm going to build my church. And nothing is going to be able to come against it. The Apostle Paul puts it this way in the passage that uh, Dave read for us this morning, that the church is centered on Christ in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 through 20. It says this, You then are no longer strangers or aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. The church stands or falls on whether or not it is centered on the word, Jesus Christ. And that's why we say continually around here, we're all about Jesus. It's a simple way of saying we're we're centered on the word. We're all about Jesus. But not just any Jesus. We're not just centered on the word to make up a Jesus in our own image and follow whatever Jesus might be proclaimed out there. We're centered on the word incarnate as the truth revealed to, as the one in whom we worship, but the revelation of the truth of the truth incarnate, the word incarnate comes through the word inspired, the word written. To be centered on the word means that we fully center our ministry on the inspired, sufficient, necessary, truthful, clear, authoritative, and productive written word of God. You, you all know the passage, most likely, in, uh, in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses... I have so many notes here. It's like trying to clean my room when I was 12. Got to dig through everything. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 16 says this, All Scripture is breathed out by God, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be equipped for every good work. We, we not only ground our ministry on the Word incarnate, but we ground our ministry on the Word incarnate as He is revealed in the Word inspired. Imagine if I was going to go open a restaurant. And you ask me, sweet, good job, go, go open a restaurant. But then you might ask me, well, what type of restaurant are you going to open? And I'll be like, duh, one that sells food. And you might ask, well, then what type of food are you going to sell? And I said, duh, food that you can eat. And then you might say, well, why would people come to your restaurant to eat food? And I said, duh, because people are hungry. Now, if that was the totality of my plan, do you think the restaurant would survive? No. And in the same way, the the church doesn't measure its success, doesn't measure whether it's effective or not based upon budgets annually or bottoms in the pews. We measure our success by our response to the word, whether we are centered on the word, whether our ministries are are overflowing with the word. There must be specificity and clarity. We're not calling you to just worship any Jesus in your that your that your imagination can make up. We're calling you to obey this Jesus, to follow this Jesus, to hear this, hear from this God, his word. We're compelling you to obey everything that he has commanded us 
our success or our failure as a church, brothers or sisters, is going to be directly tied to our response to the word and how central Jesus is in the life of our church. So many churches have failed during this pandemic or they have falsely claimed to be so successful because they're measuring their success or their failure on things other than people's response to the word. They're centered on a political platform. Well, we can rally a bunch of people together to say how great America is. We can rally a bunch of people together who can stick their their fists in the face of the government. It's not success. Are people growing in Christ? Are people meeting Jesus in the word? Maybe they think they're successful because of a kids ministry program or centered on a service project. If a church is not centered on the word, even what they claim to be successful will not stand in the day of judgment. We can't worship in truth if we abandon our devotion to the revelation of the both incarnate word as he is revealed in the inspired word. However, if we're just a church that's worshiping God in truth, we're going to lack power. There's a lot of commands, there's a lot of things to obey and to honor, but if the object of our worship uh, is is Christ and who, who commands us to do things, but we're only trying to do what he's commanded us in our own strength, we are going to fail miserably to do what Christ has commanded us to do. And this is why scripture tells us that the church isn't just an educational institution where we know more of the word, but it's a living spiritual body that works all things together, that allows for God to work all things together in his church. The the church, to put it uh, this way, is created and gathered by the spirit of God. John chapter 16, verse 8 says this, when he, the spirit of God, when the Holy Spirit comes, he will convict the world of concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Jesus is saying that the church can't exist unless the Spirit empowers his people to proclaim Christ, repent of sin, believe in the word, and the Spirit himself creates the church. But the Spirit also gathers the church. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13 says this, For in one Spirit we are all baptized into one body, Jews and Greeks, slaves or free. We are all made to drink of one Spirit. When we gather together, we are gathered together in one Spirit that has called us to Christ. The Spirit not only creates the church, not only gathers the church, but the Spirit also fuels the church to do the work that Christ has commanded us to do. This means that the church is gifted by the Spirit. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 11. All of these, these, are, these gifts are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions everything to each one, or apportions to each one individually as he wills. God gives spiritual gifts to people for the church as he pleases so that they may be empowered to do his will. And the overall effect of this, when his church is gifted and empowered, the overall effect of this is unity. 
People are united as they are gifted and serving and empowered by the Spirit. This is why Ephesians chapter 4 verse verse 3 says that the church is eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now we're experiencing a, a huge rise in gas prices. Anybody pay like $6 a gallon? I think the Begbies were in California just last week and there's, they probably had to fill up their 100-gallon tank of their, their uh, huge truck and pay $700. I'm glad you're retired. I'm glad I don't have to fill up a, a thing like that. The, the, the gas crisis has, has caused this fuel shortage, which has caused prices to spike recently. But that doesn't mean that we just throw anything in our tank, right? Just because gas is expensive doesn't mean, you know what, I'm going to put sawdust in my tank. We can't get our fuel from anywhere else to, to function, to allow for our gas-powered cars to function. The same is true for the church. If we fuel our church, whether it's adrenaline or organizational effort or willpower or might, if we fuel our church by anything other than the Spirit of God at work among us, we're setting ourselves up for failure or burnout which is one of the reasons why we sought the Lord for an extended time period last Sunday to pray that he would empower us to fulfill his vision that is outlined here in Scripture. Now, these first three aspects of the nature of the church are, are focused on our relationship to God. They're worshiping the Father in the Son through the Spirit. Notice the threefold Trinitarian language of Father, Son, Spirit, but they're not comprehensive enough to satisfy what the church is supposed to do. So the fourth foundational feature of the church is that the church is committed to God and to one another. The technical term for this is covenantal. We have a covenant relationship with God through Jesus Christ and a covenant relationship to one another through Jesus Christ. At the very inception of the church at Pentecost, uh, when the Spirit is being poured out, Peter stands before the people and he gives the first Christ-centered sermon after the resurrection and the pouring out of the Spirit that concluded with the call to people to enter into a new covenant relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Acts chapter 2, verse 36 says this, let all the house of Israel, therefore, know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. The Spirit empowered this message. It convicted them of their sin, and they repented, and they believed in Christ, and they entered into a new covenant relationship with God through Christ. This new covenant relationship then overflowed into this new covenant relationship with one another in the church. The clearest place that this is outlined is in Ephesians chapter 4. It bleeds over into chapter 5, but I'll start in verse, in verse 25. It outlines this is, this is what it means to be in a, a new covenant relationship to one another, not just to Christ, but if you are in Christ, this is how it overflows and what you're to do for one another. It says this in verse 25 of Ephesians chapter 4. Therefore, having put away all falsehood, let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we're members of one another. Be angry, but do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Give no opportunity for the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but let him labor doing honest work with his hands so that he might have something to share with someone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only, as, but only such as is good and for building up as fits the occasion that it might give grace to those 
who hear and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as Christ and God forgave you. And he continues into chapter 5. Marriage is this new covenant relationship, not theologically, but it's a covenant relationship. Before you're married, you're a single person. You have no obligations in the marital realm to anyone. But what bonds single people together when they stand before God and before the witnesses is they enter into a covenant relationship with one another and now they are bound to one another. Brothers and sisters, the Christian is saved by grace individually. Each one of us have to respond to God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ. That, and that we enter into a new covenant relationship with God. We're no longer strangers and aliens apart from God. We are now members of Christ. But that also means that we're members to one another. We're, we have obligations as believers to other people within the church, within the local church, and it's absolutely fundamental that we commit ourselves to one another in the local church. We're not passive spectators who are judging songs and music and saying, well, the pastor's sermon didn't really speak to me this week. We are active participants fulfilling the obligations of the new covenant by grace, by the Spirit at work in and through us to fulfill our commitments to Christ and to one another. But it doesn't answer the question, how exactly do we speak the truth to one another? We mentioned that the the church is centered on the word and we should always be moving in the direction more towards Christ. But how do we know like, if a person is straying a little bit? How do we know if a person is no longer a Christian? The church has always been and always will be defined by a certain set of beliefs. These statements are called doctrines or teachings. And the church is a family who holds to sound, holds fast to sound doctrine. The technical term for this is confessional. We confess the truths of the gospel and we warn people away from uh, straying outside of the boundaries of sound teaching. Christians have always been confessional. This should not be a, a point of debate. In fact, a, a person is even saved by their confession of faith. Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, that's a doctrinal statement, Jesus is Lord. You believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified. With the mouth one confesses and is saved. The, the appropriate expression of faith in Jesus Christ is belief with the heart and confession with the mouth that Jesus is Lord. But the individual Christian doesn't just hold to their confession of their faith alone. The church, together, we confess our faith. This is what we believe. There are many formulas for this confession in the New Testament, but the clearest one is probably 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 15 and 16. The Apostle Paul says to his understudy Timothy, I'm writing these things that if I delay, that you may know how to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and a buttress of truth. Verse 16, great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. And then he writes a statement of faith. He writes sound doctrine. He was manifested in the flesh, 
vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed in the world, and taken up in glory. It's a set of doctrines, a set of beliefs that all Christians have believed at all times. And it's a synopsis of outlines the truth of the gospel. These are non-negotiable beliefs that all Christians and all churches must confess in order to stay within the boundaries of sound teaching. The church, by its very nature, is confessional. Why is this important? I'll give you an example. If an intruder comes into my house, seeks to kidnap my children, harm my wife, you better believe I'm going to stand in front of him and say, over my dead body you are, right? But if I'm home alone, kids are out doing something with their mom, and an intruder comes in and says, at gunpoint, I'm here to steal your Nintendo Wii. And it's like, it's right over there. Go ahead, take it. I'm not going to get a paper cut for Mario. The church's confession of faith outlines, this is what we're going to die for. This is the hill on which we will defend and die. And it also helps us to understand things that maybe shouldn't be as important to us that we might be holding too dearly. The church is confessional. However, we we miss the essential aspect of the gospel if we're only defensive in our posture regarding the boundaries of the gospel. If the truth, or excuse me, if the church is, is truly obeying everything that Christ has taught his disciples, the church will also be making disciples of all nations. The church has been given what is titled a great commission. After Jesus puts it this way, after his resurrection is recorded in John chapter 20, verse 21, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so even so I am sending you. Jesus commissioned his church to advance the gospel, to multiply disciples by making disciple-making churches. The, the, church doesn't, the church that does not live on mission to advance the mission of Jesus is dying even as it sits in the pews hearing its teaching. If a church fails to multiply disciples and multiply disciple-making churches, it's writing its own death certificate. It might as well call a hospice pastor to pastor it to its own death. The church gave, or Jesus gave the church this commission, but it's the church. It's people like you and me who live out this mission, and it's recorded very clearly for us in the book of Acts. As the expansion of the gospel expands through various cultures to fulfill this vision of uh, making disciples among all nations, and he tracks it along uh, along its expansion. The, the book of Acts does in chapter two, verse forty-seven, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Or in chapter 9, verse 31, so the church throughout all of Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. It was walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Or in chapter 13, verses 48 through 49, when the Gentiles heard this, this is the gospel, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many who were appointed to eternal life believed, verse 49, and the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. The church is missional. 
It lives on the mission of Jesus and multiplies and spreads. And if it doesn't, it is shrinking and dying. Pastor Cassidy's favorite image to teach on this particular topic, and it's so simple and it's so clear and it, 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 it's captivating. Healthy organisms multiply. It's as simple as that. Healthy fish make other healthy fish. Healthy dogs make other healthy dogs. Healthy rabbits make hundreds of other healthy rabbits. Healthy disciples make other healthy disciples. Healthy churches multiply other healthy churches. It's a sinful impulse within us or any church to be so focused on our own needs that we fail to live out our spiritual DNA of church multiplication. And I hear the, the pushback, but we need small groups and worship team members and Sunday school classes and more fellowship opportunities. Yes, all of those things are wonderful and good. And we do need more of them. And if we fail strategically in those areas, we probably fail in multiplication as well. But if we fail to pray and obey the Great Commission, we're a dead church walking. But what gives us the hope that our mission will succeed? Why risk family and relationships and money and finances to potentially, potentially uh, give towards a mission? Well, because it will succeed eventually. Our mission will succeed because we have a certain hope as dual citizens of both heaven and earth. The church, you and I, we're a heavenly outpost. We're a glimpse of heaven brought into the present reality. The church, you and I, we're composed of the citizens of heaven. Your citizenship is in heaven, the Apostle Paul writes. But we're also a historical reality. We're gathered in time and space in Reno in the 21st century. The, the term church in the New Testament is translated from the word ecclesia, which simply just means assembly. There's an assembly at the lecture hall, an assembly at the marketplace. It just means an assembly. It's a historical located gathering of people in a ge geographical location. The, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2, the Apostle Paul begins his letter by saying this, to the church of God that is in Corinth, there's an assembly, a gathering of, uh, of the people of God that is in a specific location in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together, together with all those in every place who call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Brothers and sisters, there's no such thing as an invisible church without a visible, localized gathering of the church. This doesn't prescribe that all churches must meet in a particular style of building. But it does mean that all churches must be meeting in person. As long as human beings, you and I, are located in time and space, churches must gather in time and in space. This is a non-negotiable. It doesn't mean that the church might stop meeting or in a, in a particular way. It doesn't mean that churches can't meet without wearing masks or doing things to prevent the, the health and safety of others, to pr promote the health and safeties of others. It doesn't mean that the church just stops meeting when bombs are raining down upon their city. 
And it doesn't mean that churches stop gathering or Christians stop gathering in their church when their kids make the travel soccer team. The church meets locally now to practice what the church will be doing forever in heaven. The church, we are a mission outpost for heaven. It's led by Christ. It's fueled by love for one another. And this is why the Apostle Peter describes the church as sojourners and exiles. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. How are you going to know how to continue in this journey towards heaven if you don't gather with other sojourners and exiles for encouragement and love and, and joy in the Lord? The church goes to battle for one another right now against the evil within and encouraging one another towards the certain hope. Hebrews chapter 10 verses 24 and 25 captures this so well. Let us consider how to stir up one another towards love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day that is approaching. As we gather together, encouraging one another towards love, we are practicing what we will be doing in heaven forever, loving one another and glorifying God. These are the seven fundamental aspects, fundamental features of the church, a worshiping community centered on Christ, empowered by the Spirit, committed to God and one another, holding fast to sound doctrine, living on mission, understanding our identity as dual citizens of heaven and earth. So let me just close. What's preventing you from living this out? What's hampering you from your participation in this? This is God's design for his church. All of these non-negotiable must be being done by his church. And if we fail in any one of these areas for a prolonged period of time where we neglect them forever, we cease to be a church itself. What's hindering or keeping you from fully engaging in this biblical vision of what God has designed the church to be? Just over five years ago, my family and I, we made the truck out here. Packing up our bags in Illinois, saying goodbye to friends that we had labored in mission with for the course of many, many years, hugging our family members, who we knew we were going to see a lot less frequently, sacrificing a comfortable job in a healthy church where I was compensated well. You guys do great, don't get me wrong. But I was compensated well there. Why did we do it? Why did we make the trek out here? It's not to be a hospice pastor to see that this church just dies a nice and peaceful death. Now, I don't plan on going anywhere for a long time. But as a church, we must be making progress towards this biblical vision of the church. And if not, what are we doing? A little over a year ago, I made the difficult decision to move in a new direction for our worship ministry. It was difficult. It was painful. 
I didn't like making that decision. And it wasn't because we weren't worshiping last year. But it's because God has more for us. And God desires to fulfill his vision of being a worshiping community in a unique way in, at Sierra Bible Church in Reno and Sparks. At the very beginning of my ministry here at the Sierra Bible Church, I made it very clear. Every single message you hear from this pulpit is going to be from the scriptures. It's going to glorify Jesus unapologetically, without compromise. Yeah, I might not be the greatest, but I'm pretty darn good. And it's going to come from the word that we are going to be centered on. And we're going to measure all of our success on the basis of the word and the word alone. Last week, we took an extended time after the message to pray together because we're just in this season where we need God to move. Like, this is his vision. This isn't my vision. This is God's vision that he outlines for his church in the scripture. But God, unless you come and you meet with us and you empower us and you remove our apathy and our laziness and our, our ritualism, unless you do this, God, we're going to die. Begging for God to move. Also here at SBC, we prioritize membership. We're not comfortable with you just being a regular attender, visiting, checking in every Sunday, and then just going off doing your own thing. We want you to be committed. Growth comes through commitment to God and to one another. We prioritize membership. We've also made a rigorous effort to enhance our understanding of sound doctrine. Yeah, I know we have a lot of people who've who've uh, been here for a number of years, perhaps even decades. But the things that are pressing against the boundaries of sound doctrine now are not the things that are pressing against sound doctrine 20, 30 years ago. They're different. And the next generation needs to know what those boundaries are and clarify it for them. And if we just think, oh, well, we got everything that we need in, in sound doctrine, we don't need to be taught anymore. <laughs> Call a hospice pastor. I'm so encouraged within the last two years. We've raised up workers from within and sent them to the hardest places on the earth. Can't even say it because it's being live streamed. They're undercover. Advancing the mission of Jesus in the hardest of places. And brothers and sisters, if we're not doing that both, both universally, globally, in the hardest of places and at the same time doing it locally, multiplying churches here. We failed to attend to the mission of Jesus. And lastly, pandemics and wars and just living in the stress of this life is so hard. The only way we're going to endure we're going to finish the race and finish it well. As if we press into our identity as sojourners and strangers, this is not our home. We can't get worked up about the same things that the world get work, gets worked up about. It damages our witness. And it communicates to a watching world that, oh, I see where their comfort and hope and security is. It's in their health and safety. They have nothing unique to offer me. 
But brothers and sisters, if we are truly sojourners and exiles, not at home in this world, seeking our eternal home in heaven, let goods and kindred go. This mortal life also, the body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Let it go. For those of you among us who all of this is foreign, you don't know Christ. You're not just a, you're not a stranger to this world, but you're a stranger to Christ. We welcome you this morning with open arms to not just belong to us as a church, but to belong to Christ and find eternal meaning and value and hope through faith in him. Talk to pastor or shepherd, someone who you know knows Christ to begin that journey today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Heavenly Father, I, I praise you for your word. I praise you for that your, your vision for the church is clear. That you don't stutter in what you desire to see in our people. God, just do whatever it takes to break our hard hearts, to get over ourselves, so that we might worship you in spirit and in truth. God, that we might humble ourselves under you and your authority. Be the community of people that you are calling us to be. And help us to walk by faith and not by sight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.